So open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. We've been going with the Israelites on their journey to the promised land. It's been a fun journey. Hasn't always been easy because no good journey is easy, the whole time at least. There's easy, easy sections of your journey, right? Right now, this, this season in your life might be an easy one, but you also know what it's like to have a season that's, that you've got to fight. But here's the good news. You have victory in Jesus Christ. Scripture says you're going to have to fight. It doesn't say you have to lose. It says you have to fight. And thank God we have the victor living on the inside of us. Often in the Scripture, the fights we lose are the fights we give up on, right? Those are the fights we lose, the fights we give up too early. We quit. We think God abandoned us. Many people feel condemned simply because they're going through a fight. They think because there's a fight, I must have, did, I must have done something wrong. I shouldn't have to fight right now. I shouldn't have a struggle right now. What am I doing wrong, Lord? That doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. I mean, if you read the Bible, all your heroes had to fight. They didn't fight alone. Their strength wasn't their own. Their strength came from God. And so I'm asking you tonight to believe that the champion of champions, the victor of victors, is on your side. And that every fight that he has, he has uh, placed you in a position to fight, he's placed you in a position to win. So if we're going to turn in Exodus 17, I trust you're already there. We're going to come upon what happened after the Israelites got water from a rock. I think what's happened to them so far, the sea is open, plagues in Egypt, Pharaoh lets them go, the sea parts for them, they come to bitter water, water that's poisonous, and God turns it clean. They have manna, food falling from heaven. They have water coming from a rock. I mean, God has been amazing them at every step. That doesn't mean they've been perfect, though, does it? It doesn't even mean that they've learned to trust God. Through all these things, they trust him for like five minutes, and then they go back to their old ways. And we talked about this last week, but the song that they seem, their top 40 hit that they play at every gig is that song, you must have brought us out here to die. Were there not enough graves in Egypt? Did you have to kill us here? See, you might have had issues with God, but have you ever said to God, God, what's your problem? You just wanted me to die in Edmonton? There weren't enough graves in Lloydminster? Have you ever felt that way? Because this is what they say over and over again. They're convinced that God is for them sometimes, but not all the time. They have not yet truly been convinced that they have a father whose covenant with them is greater than any covenant they've ever known, than any father they've ever known. In fact, they still think like slaves. When you think like slaves and God brings you out of slavery, there's two things that have to happen. Number one, you physically have to come out of slavery. But the second thing is your mind has to be renewed. You know, when you got born again, God set you free. Isn't that right? He brought you out of darkness into light. But how many of you, you know, experienced the fact that you didn't get a brain transplant the moment you got born again? Some of the same doubts, some of the same fears, some of the same questions were still there. You had a new spirit, but you still had the same old mind you've always had. And what does the Bible say? We renew our minds according to the word of God. The Bible says don't be conformed to this world. The world is trying to conform you to what they want you to be. It says don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed, be changed, be metamorphosized 
by the renewing of your mind. So you, we're, we're starting to look more and more like Jesus when our minds begin to not, not just change one way, but to, to actually become more like him. And the way that happens, the Bible says that, that we're washed by the water of the word. That's one of the greatest ways that our minds are renewed is we, we see this and we see who we are. You know, James wrote this. He said, uh, he said, don't be just a hearer, somebody that just comes and hears the word. Be a doer. He said, because somebody who's like a, just a hearer and not a doer is like someone who looks into the, the word, looks into the word of God, the law of liberty, he calls it, the perfect law of liberty, and sees who they are like they're looking into a mirror. They look into the word and it's like looking into the mirror. But then when they turn away, they immediately forget who they are. That's why our minds need to be renewed. Because we're prone to forget who we are. But when you're transformed into the image of the sun and you let your brain change. Somebody says, are you being brainwashed at that church? Well, it depends what your definition of brainwashed is. (laughs) Nobody's forcing you to believe anything. But you got a dirty head. You got dirty thoughts. And dirty thoughts we always think are like perverted. But, you know, dirty just mean, to me just means it's not holy. And, you know, we always think of, you know, we got a certain thing we think of when we say somebody's thoughts aren't clean. But I'll tell you, if you are plagued with fear all the time, if you are plagued with self-doubt all the time, then there's some thoughts that need to be cleaned up. And you don't need to feel condemned about that because we all have been there. We all still deal with that. But thank God he's come to give us life and life more abundantly. He's come to wash our minds, wash our hearts, wash all of us. And so here's what happens to the Israelites. They've seen water come out of the rock. They should be, you'd think they'd be set in the faith department for a while, but they're not. Exodus 17 verse 8 says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. Amalek was a a nation of people. Israelites didn't come and, you know, start poking bears. But as they're walking towards the promised land, there's some people there that don't want them around. So they come out and they attack Israel at Rephidim. So Moses says to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now let me, let me just lay out the scene for you here. I... I I'm sure the Amalekites, this is, you know, you've probably heard of the Amalekites. Amalek was just, you know, the name of their ancestor that they took it from. So the Amalekites were a tribe that fought with other tribes all the time, a nation that fought with other nations all the time. And the Israelites are going to run into a lot of these guys. And these folks don't really like the Israelites walking through their territory. They don't come out and negotiate. They don't come out and try to work out a deal. They just come out and attack them. Now, the Amalekites, they may not be the mightiest empire on the planet, but they're, they're used to fighting. They're used to war. You don't go and attack people unless you're ready to fight and ready to win. But think what the Israelites, where did the Israelites come from? What have they been doing all their lives? Have they been fighting? No. Have they learned how to, how to, how to any, any form of warfare? No. You know what they've been doing with their life? Making bricks for the Egyptians. They've been slaves all their life. No one taught them how to fight. No one taught them the technique of warfare or, or, or just practically how to pick something up sharp and use it. I don't even know if they had weapons. 
The Bible says they took some stuff from the Egyptians, but it was mostly things that you'd use to build a tabernacle, not to fight with. They might have had some crude weaponry, but archaeological evidence tells us that they were pretty backward as far as the weapons technology was concerned. You'll find later that God tells them how to defend themselves, and he says if someone attacks you with chariots, which you guys might not think chariots are a big deal. I know they're remaking Ben-Hur. Jury's out on whether that's going to be any good. The original was awesome. Now, here's how you know. Here's, we're going to judge your, we're going to judge your spirituality here. Isn't that why you came to church to be judged? No, I'm just kidding. When you think of Ben-Hur, do you think of Ben-Hur meeting Jesus or do you think about the amazing chariot race? Okay, all right. You guys aren't that spiritual. No, I'm just kidding. I think of the chariots too and Jesus. We can think of both, right? But chariots may not seem like great technology to us, but in the ancient world, they were the tanks. This was, it might not seem like advanced technology to you, but it was to them, and, and, and chariots won battles. So God tells the Israelites, as you know, later on, after, quite a bit after this battle, but he tells them, when people attack you with chariots, here's what you do. And you capture their chariots. He says, you hamstring their horses. I know there's animal lovers here and you're cringing, but take comfort in this. He, told, he didn't tell them to kill the horses. He just said, you know, hamstring them so they can't be used in battle against you again. Why did God tell them that? Because the Israelites didn't know how to work a chariot. So they capture a chariot. They don't know what to do with it. The best thing they can do is just make sure that horse never attacks them again. And then they leave the horses because they didn't know what to do with them. They weren't used to it. So these people were very backwards as far as warfare. They didn't know what to do and they get attacked. These guys must be like sheep before the slaughter because think about it, it's a whole nation. It's not just strong guys or strong women. It is a whole nation of old people and young people, men and women, traveling as a caravan through the desert. You'd think when they get attacked by somebody who's ready for a fight, they're probably going to lose. But Moses says this, Joshua, pick your best guys. Get ready, and I'm going to stand up here with the staff of the Lord. And it says this, that Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought against Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. Talk about pressure, huh? (laughs) I wonder when when he really noticed that that's what was going on. Wait, hey, wait a minute, huh? Can you imagine that? Let me just say this straight up. When he put the staff down, when he had the staff up, God was helping the Israelites. When he put his staff down, God was not helping the other guys. It's just they were that bad at fighting that without divine help, they were going to lose. So it's not like he put his staff down and God says, now I'm on the other team. Now here's another question. Well, let's, let's read a couple more verses. Then I'm going to ask you something else. So every time he puts his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. I mean, these ancient battles, they took a a while. Then they took a stone and they put it under him. And he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun, sun set. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. Literally in Hebrew says, put it in his ears. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. 
Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is My Banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Now, it says the Lord has sworn, but in the literal Hebrew, it says a hand went up before the throne of God. So how does that translate to the Lord has sworn? Well, when the translators see that, they say, hand went up before the throne. That must be like an oath being made. And that quite possibly could be the meaning. But the other way you could possibly look at it is that Moses' hands went before the throne of God and he interceded for the people. Either way, God stepped into this situation. They, were, they had no business winning this battle. I bet there are some of you here tonight that have no business winning the battles that you find yourself in. But if God's for you, who can be against you? Now remember this, our battle is no longer against flesh and blood, the Bible says. So don't, don't go think you can go take a pipe wrench, pick a fight on the street, and God will help you, right? <laughs> he's, he's not into that. Our battle, the Bible says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. In, in other words, people are not your enemy. It is against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. It's a supernatural battle you're fighting. And we've all been part of that struggle. We've experienced the struggle of being in the middle of a fight and knowing you shouldn't come through on the other side of this fight. Knowing that, that as far as the odds are concerned, you're going to lose. And maybe somebody just straight out thought they were loving you and just told you you're going to lose. You can't win this one. This is it. This is impossible. But our God specializes in the impossible, doesn't he? So Moses stands up there. And he holds up his staff, the same staff that he threw down on the ground in front of Pharaoh and it turned into a serpent. The same staff that he held up and the sea split. Do you guys think the staff was magic? You know what? It was just an old stick. But it was a symbol for the people and God used that symbol. He used that staff God didn't bring Moses to a magic tree and said, take from the magic tree and here's a magic staff. It isn't, there's no magic stick. There's no stick of power. There's just a God, our God, the one and true God who is more powerful than anything else. And he used a staff. And as long as Moses held it up, the people prevailed. They won. And in fact, they ended up winning the whole battle. And the statement that Moses makes when he builds an altar is he names it, the Lord is my banner. What is a banner to them? A banner was what you'd have flying over you when you went into battle. It symbolized not only what you were fighting for, but what was over you and protecting you. You're fighting for something much bigger than yourselves. And when he said, the Lord is my banner, he's saying a couple of things. First of all, he's saying we fight for him. But more than anything else, he's saying the Lord has placed himself over us as protection for us, as deliverance for us. He is the banner that we fight under. He is the banner that we take shelter under. The Lord is my banner. Now, here's a question I was talking about earlier. Why did God do it this way? Because we all know God wanted Israel to win, right? Like he didn't bring them out, like they said, he didn't bring them out to the desert to kill them. So why does he make it so that they only win if Moses stands up there with a stick? I mean, if you guys were doing it, would you do it that way? Or would you just say, you know what? You guys will just win, all right? <laughs> I'll help you the whole time. 
Why does it matter that Moses is holding a staff in the air? Why does it matter? Why did God need someone to do that? Well, first of all, it's not that God needed it, but that's exactly the way God wanted to do it. And here's the reason that I believe, I believe there's more than one. Number one, he had placed Moses as a leader for these people. And as much as they needed to trust God, they also needed to trust Moses. They needed to trust that God was using Moses. You might say, well, he already had proved himself to him. But yeah, but how many times? It was just a, just a little bit ago, they were picking up rocks wanting to stone him to death. So the crowds are fickle here. They need to see that God has placed Moses in a position where he's interceding for them. They need to see the power of somebody interceding for them. And they also needed to see this, that Moses could not do it on his own. Because as much as they needed a leader, he needed them. His hands grew heavy. His back grew tired. Remember, he's an old man by the time this is happening. I don't know if your head goes to Charlton Heston or what it goes to, but he's not a young man. He's not a young man when this happens. He's quite old by this time. Well, I mean, it depends on your definition of old, I suppose, but he's not young. His hands get tired. His back gets tired. They give him a rock to sit on, and two of his right-hand guys, I guess a right-hand guy and a left-hand guy, lift his arms up and keep them up during battle. And I think these are two powerful pictures of intercession. We all know that God is more than enough for us. We know that Jesus is more than enough for us. We know Jesus is our intercessor. Isn't that right? He stands before the throne of God and intercedes for us. We know that. But we also know that in the, in the New Testament, as God has placed us in a body, in a church, that he tells us to pray for one another. So you can get it in your head, well, all I need is Jesus. And I'll tell you, all you need is Jesus, but God puts you in a body so that you're going to need the rest of the body of Christ. See, when you say all I need is Jesus, you got to remember the body of Christ is the body of Christ. If all you need is Christ, you need his body. We'd all rather do, I mean, there, there's periods of our life where we'd all rather just do it alone. If I do it alone, I can just be me. I don't have to... Get along with you. I don't have to do what you say. I don't have to make you feel good. I could just do things my way. Just me and Jesus. I'll watch YouTube videos and get fed. I'll, uh, I'll put a CD on for music. I'll be fine. But God did not design the body to work that way. I'll tell you right now, there's no such thing as a perfect church. You guys know that because you're here. Right? And as the old saying goes, if you found a perfect church, the moment you stepped in the door, it would become imperfect, wouldn't it? <laughs> Forgot who it was that said, I refuse to be part of an organization that will have me as a member. <laughs> Everybody looking for the perfect church? You'll never find it, but I'll tell you what an imperfect church looks like. Somebody trying to do it alone is pretty imperfect. God uses these people around us to form himself in us. To make us more like him. And part of that, it's not always just the good things they do that, make, that change us for the better. Sometimes it's the fact that you don't like them. And they may not be super fond of you, but you learn to love each other that makes you more like Jesus. One thing we got to know is we need to pray for each other. This ties into what we talked about on Sunday, about the need to pray. 
Pray for those that, that, that are around you. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your friends. Pray for your brothers and sisters. We need each other. Jesus said, I need you to pray with me in the garden. Paul said it over and over again. Pray for me. There's no super Christians, guys. There's no superheroes in the group. There's not one person on the planet who's ever walked outside of Jesus Christ himself that's been perfect enough to say, I don't need you guys. We need one another. We need to pray for one another. And so the Israelites got, had to get used to the unfortunate fact. They, they, they got used to the fact that when, when God is with us, we win, even when we're not prepared to win. And I, maybe you're in a fight right now that you are not prepared to win, but your God is more than able. But I want to urge you, I want to encourage you. Thank God, I, I'm sure you're, you've brought this to the Lord. I'm sure that you have, have, have taken this to heaven. You know in the name of Jesus, everything he has is yours. You know your covenant rights. You know that there is not a person on the planet that stands between you and God except for Jesus Christ. He's your mediator. You don't need a priest to, to come to and say, would you talk to God for me? You don't, you don't need a super spiritual person to say, can you hear from God for me? You can come directly to the throne of God. Isn't that great? But don't let that fool you into thinking that God doesn't want you to talk to someone and say, I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray for me. That we don't need people interceding for us. That's the way God created the body. He could have created you as a complete body, but he didn't. He made you a body part. You are a body part. And I, I, I know if you just think about, I, think about any part of your body, anyone, no matter if it's, if it's the, your favorite part of your body or what. I, if you have a favorite part of your body, that's a little strange. I don't know why you would, but, you know, pick a part of your body, and as wonderful as it is, if you, if you put it by itself, it wouldn't be wonderful anymore, would it? You may have, you may have the greatest hearing. You, can, you might have perfect pitch. You can hear the note. But if your ear is by itself, even if it has brain function, connected to your brain somehow, but it's just an ear, you can't live life that way. Your hands may be able to build amazing things, put machines back together, but those hands by themselves won't do anything. So I, 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 no matter how talented you are in the body of Christ, you do not, you were not designed to live in isolation. And the Israelites learned a powerful lesson. God is for us. God is for us, but he's put people in our life to intercede for us. They learned how to follow a leader, which was tough. They learned that guy's going to intercede for us. But lest you think all they needed was a leader, that guy needed them. And we see another picture of intercession here, don't we? I mean, Aaron and her weren't praying for Moses, but they might as well have been. They stood beside him and held his arms up. Because even Moses would grow tired and weak. And this was a lesson for Moses too, because you know the next thing to happen in their story? The very next thing, if you just went on to the next chapter, is Moses is going to have someone say to his face, Moses, you're trying to do everything by yourself and you can't. Mm -hmm. It was right after this that they appointed 70 elders to help Moses do what God called him to do. So Moses had to learn a lesson. I can't do this by myself. 
Not one of us lives in isolation. I want to read you something that we've quoted before, but it is, it's, it's a perfect example for me. We mentioned it on Sunday, but I'd like you to read it with me today. And then we'll, read, we'll close with a, a verse in Romans. But in, in Philippians chapter, let's just, I'm not sure where we want to start, but I mean, it'd be chapter one. Let's start in verse 19. Right, the latter part of verse 18. Philippians 1.18 says, yes, and I will rejoice. Just to give you background, he's, like we said on Sunday, Paul is writing this in the darkest and dankest of, of, of Roman prisons. He's very near death. I don't know if you've ever got a letter from someone you love that says, I don't know if this will be the last letter I write to you or not. But when Paul wrote this letter, he's saying, I don't know if I should live or die. It takes a lot to get, to, someone to get someone to that point, doesn't it? I'm talking about a man of faith. I'm talking about a man of strength. And he's saying, I'm making a decision right now whether I'm going to stay on this earth or I'm going to go to be with Jesus. He says, it would be much better to be with Jesus. But I, by the end of it, he says, I think I'll stay for your sake. But he says this. He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Why? Through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul is convinced he will be delivered, and here's why. Because you're praying, and we have the provision of the Spirit. What does that mean? That means your prayers are combining with the power of the Holy Spirit. See, we don't supply the power, but God works through our prayers. The power of the Holy Spirit is available to us. The provision of the Holy Spirit is available to us. The strength and the comfort of the Holy Spirit is available to us. But it works this way. The Holy Spirit can, will work directly with you. He'll minister to you. He'll, he'll comfort you. He'll encourage you. But he'll also often use people to work through to do that very same thing. We've said this many times, but... How many times do you think it would have been better for God to just bypass us all? You know, when the shepherds were in the field and they saw angels and the angels said, hey, glory to God in the highest, peace among men, to, peace on earth among men whom, with whom he is pleased. And they said, you know, there's going to be a baby born in Bethlehem. Go and see him. Yeah, sometimes I just feel like, God, why don't you just do that? Send the angels to Lloyd. Maybe Canada Day when everyone's at Bud. Everybody's at Bud Miller Park looking at the sky. Send the angels and say, hey, y'all need to get saved. But God doesn't do that. He uses you. He chose to use you. He wants to use you. He's not trying to get around his people. He's trying to get through his people and work through his people. We, we fall into the trap of thinking the only people that need our prayers are the people that are just obviously so messed up. <laughs> You know, just like the spiritual train wrecks. They need our prayers because they, God knows they don't have it together. And you're right, they do. But look at this guy, one of the heroes of the faith. He says, I need your prayers. The only way I'm getting out of this is by your prayers and the provision of the Holy Spirit. It takes a lot of humility to do that. It takes a lot of humility to submit yourself to the prayers of others. 
To put your life in someone else's hands is a big deal, but he does it. He says this in, in, in Romans chapter 15 and verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren. I hear some people still flipping, so I'll give you a minute. I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. Now, you know that Paul means this. He's bringing out the big guns. He's saying, I'm, I'm pleading with you right now, and I'm doing it. I, I urge you by our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you, ever, have you ever pulled that gun out in a conversation? Have you ever gone that big where you, where you felt comfortable saying that? I beg you by Jesus Christ. Most of you feel like you're swearing if you said that, right? But Paul is, this is how serious he is. He says, I urge you by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. I mean, this is intense language. He's he's serious about this. I urge you guys, I beg you guys, I am, I am pleading with you by Jesus himself and by the love of the Holy Spirit. If there's any love in you, do this for me. Strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. What does strive mean? It means to fight. Fight with me. Fight alongside me in your prayers for me. And this is what God is saying to his people. You need someone to fight alongside for you, with you. How do they fight alongside with you? By praying for you. Too often our culture, I mentioned this on Sunday, too often in Christian culture we say praying for you, thoughts and prayers, as just a basic way of saying, yeah, it's sad, move on. Hashtag pray for this. If you mean it, praise the Lord. You have every right to say it. You know, if you put on your Facebook, some, some cities attack, you put on your Facebook, pray for this city, and you pray for that city, God bless you. There's a whole bunch of people who put it that don't, but I'm not their judge. And I say if you're doing it and you're praying for them, put it all over your wall. Put it on, on your literal wall. I don't care. I mean, that's great. We should be. But the problem is, is that we say we're praying for people and then we really don't. Then people say, well, prayer doesn't do anything. Or we say we're going to pray for somebody, we just kind of give it a quick kiss-off prayer instead of really getting before God. And people say prayer doesn't work. Prayer works. Last night, we were just in a meeting and saw people, like, multiple people healed right there in front of us. And we say prayer doesn't work. Of course prayer works. And so when we talk about this, it's very easy for us also to think like I said, the train wrecks, the, the people that obviously have problems, they need prayer. But not that guy. He's fine. Look, he's taking care of it. No, it's a lie of the enemy. We all need somebody holding us up in prayer, fighting alongside us. Don't be too proud to say, I need you to pray for me. I need you to fight with me. And this is the other thing I was getting at. When we, when we devalue the power of prayer, because we say we're going to pray and we don't. Or, or we say we're going to pray and we just barely do. We just kind of give it a, a second, you know, an afterthought prayer. Here's what happens. People say, well, what's the point? 
You know, I've heard people say, don't pray for me, actually do something. But if they knew the power of prayer, they'd know that is doing something. Prayer doesn't mean you shouldn't use your hands, your feet, and everything else God gave you. In fact, James writes this. He says, if you go by somebody who needs something, one of your brothers is in need, and you say, you give him a blessing, say, be warm and filled, and you walk away, and you had what he needed, he said, the love of God's not in you. Boy, that was a hard one for me to hear, I tell you. If I've got something someone needs, and they, sit, and they need it, and it's a brother of mine, and I go, oh, the Lord, be warm and filled, but I've got it, and I don't give it to him, that's a problem. So we should be acting. We should be, you know, God wants to use you as the prayer and the answer to prayer many times. But never think that prayer is just the extra stuff we do. Prayer is the main weapon. Prayer is the strongest thing you should do. Don't think it's the, oh, you know, I heard people say this. Well, all I can do is pray. All you can do is pray. (laughs) It's like a doctor saying, you need surgery. All I can do is do the surgery. I can't bring you soup in the morning. Well, who cares if you bring me soup? Do the surgery, man. That's the most important thing you could do right now. Gas station attendant. All I can do is put gas in your car. I I can't sell you chips. Put gas in my car. We say all I can do is pray. That is the most important thing you should do. Most important. And I guarantee you pray for somebody. God will send someone to do something. And it might be you. So don't pray for someone if you're not prepared to be used by God. Right? Jesus said to his disciples, pray that the Lord would send laborers into the field. They say, amen, we'll pray for that. Then he says, okay, guys, go, two by two. Oh, man, I thought we were praying for somebody else to do that. (laughs) Isn't that what we do when we don't want to reach someone? Lord, send laborers into their path. Like, meanwhile, we see them every day. (laughs) Send laborers into their path. You know, someone who knows you and loves you. Someone a lot like me, except not me. Please, God, not me. (laughs) Don't get on your knees unless you're willing to do something when you get off your knees. But the most important thing you can do is on your knees. That's our most powerful weapon is prayer. Brent and I, when we were young men, we listened to a band called Petra. (laughs) Classic Christian rock. When you think Christian rock was wimpy, you didn't know Petra. (laughs) Petra had a song said, get on your knees and fight like a man. That was a good song. I'm going to listen to that after the service, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Like, put the moonroof back on my car. (laughs) It's not a cool car. It's a dad car, but it'll work. Fight with me, he says. Fight alongside me. Fight with me by praying for me. He says, this is what I want you to pray, that I might be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It's a powerful statement. Once again, he's putting his life in their hands. What are you praying? Pray that I be rescued from the people that are trying to hurt me. It's not the only time he says it. He says it again. He says, pray that I be rescued from evil men. You say, well, Paul, why don't you pray? I'm sure he is. You say, Paul, don't you have enough faith? Why do you need someone else? It's not a matter 
of not having enough faith. It's the fact that God called us to pray together. That's why Jesus said, if two or three agree touching anything, you have whatever you've asked for. He said one, one person could make a thousand enemies run away, but two can make 10,000 run. There's power in agreement. It's why the enemy wants to divide us. It's why Jesus said, if you're going to go praying, he said, he said, pray in faith, believe whatever you've asked, you have. But then he says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you've got anything against anyone, you go make it right. Why does he have to say that? He has to say that because the enemy would come to divide us, to weaken our prayer, to weaken. Because we, if we keep that unforgiveness, we've let strife and division in. And the Bible says where there is strife and division, there is every evil work. That doesn't work. So just as Moses stood up, held his staff, if you're in a fight right now that seems way too big for you, number one, your God is able. Number two, get someone praying with you and for you. Because the battle is the Lord's, but we fight alongside one another. Number three, it's good to be led, it's good to have people in your life that are helping you out that are a little further along than you or maybe God put in your life to teach you or whatever. But don't forget they need you too. Don't ever think someone's so spiritual or so strong that they don't need you praying for them. Just as Moses needs someone holding his hands up, just as Paul needed people interceding for him, we need people praying for every part of the body. Let's bring power back in our prayer again, amen? You know, people need faith in God. But God has not held a thing back from his people. He says, if you ask, you receive. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, the door will be open. He says, I have granted you everything that you need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. So we have but to ask. There are some battles that are going to be won in an instant. There's some battles that are going to take some time. Let's not grow weary in doing well. For in due time, we'll reap a harvest if we don't quit, the Bible says. Let's stand up and we're going to pray together.